as Brother Aaron mentioned, we've been in Exodus now for just over a year, and we're in the final fourth. We're hoping to be done. I'm hoping to be done this summer. Um, but there are seasons I, I think where it's appropriate to take a break and do something different. Um, we as a church body have been in a season of sorrow and sadness. You know, I mean, the Bible says when one member of the body hurts, we all hurt. And so I thought it appropriate to take a break from Exodus and look at 2 Corinthians 6.10. Um, and I do pray that we would be comforted by the word of God. This was the first book that I taught through verse by verse. Some consider it Paul's hardest letter. It was uh, at the Boston Rescue Mission when I was in seminary, and it was to a group of uh, drug addicts and homeless, and I spent the summer working through 2 Corinthians, and it was sweet, and the Lord used it. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 6.10. I'm really going to focus on that verse. We'll look elsewhere at the surrounding context, but that's where we're going to land. We're going to park there for a while this morning. The title of my sermon is from the verse, I'm quoting the verse, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And that sounds strange. That sounds like a contradiction. How can you be sorrowful and yet rejoice? Well, if you're a believer, you can say amen to that. Those two, sorrow and joy, are mingled together. Here's the big idea. As you know, I love alliteration. Believers can praise in the midst of pain because of the promises of God. I've had the privilege of living in other parts of the world. Uh, I've lived in Africa. I was there for 2010. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in Albania, three summers, uh, leading mission trips, long trips there. I lived in Boston for three years and then just outside of Seattle for 10 years. But this is where I grew up, Lufkin, East Texas. But I've experienced culture shock. Who knows what culture shock is? It's when you're transported from one culture to another, and because the differences are so great, right, there's maybe a different language being spoken, different customs, uh, different way of dressing, just a different way of doing life that when you get to that new culture, you're like, what do I do? I, I don't understand what is going on. You feel like you're on a different planet. Let me give you a few examples. Um, when I lived in Africa in 2010, Whenever you would see somebody on the road, we'd be walking, and I would be met with this greeting, Webumienia, and I came to find out quickly, that means, how did you sleep? That's how they greeted you. How did you sleep? I've never done that. I mean, when I meet somebody for the first time, how are you, what's your name? But they would ask, say it with me, Webuni, Yinia. You guys speak Limboom. That's great. Another thing that stood out was men would hold hands while walking. It was a sign of friendship. There was nothing sexual about it. These were men that were married to women, but they would hold hands, grown men. And I remember the first time I'm walking with a student, I, I taught at a seminary in Cameroon, grabbed my hand. Whoa, what's going on, man? But it was a sign of friendship. It was appropriate. I, I wasn't used to that. Um, th this is interesting. So we teach our kids, most of us, maybe you don't. This is East Texas, so we probably don't. But stranger danger, right? Man, I'll tell you what, those parents, they didn't know me. Kids were showing up at my house calling me Uncle Chris day one. You would call the cops if that happened today. In that culture, that's a term of respect. Children call an adult male uncle and an adult female aunt. 
And so all these kids are calling me, Uncle Chris, Uncle Chris. The whole time I was there, I loved it. It was so sweet. In Albania, you know, you greet people with a kiss on the cheek. You know, that was strange. Do we do that here? No. And they dance. They dance all the time. It's a folk dance. It's, it's a celebratory dance. But every night we're doing, it was a mission trip, and I did it for three years in a row, and we're sharing the gospel. But at night they would play their music, and they would just dance. You know, you've heard you can dance if you want to. You don't have a choice. You had to dance. And then one more example. Of course, the food was different in all these places. I love food. If someone can find out how to make fufu jama jama for me, you'll be my best friend for life. I live on that stuff. Fufu jama jama. What is that? You'll find out in glory. You know, we lived in just outside of Seattle for 10 years. And there is such a thing as Southern hospitality. Man, you know, we moved into a new neighborhood, and I'm one of those guys, I just want to meet people, right? And I, I thought, you know, they see the moving truck in our driveway, they see us unloading boxes, bring them to the house. Nobody came over. Nobody said hi. And so I said, Haley, let's bake some cookies and go meet our neighbors. <laughs> and so we took cookies to all the neighbors, and they're like, what are you doing? We're, we're new here. We we wanted to bring you cookies and, and say hello. Why? What is happening? Culture shock. That should be the church. That should be the church wherever it gathers. The church in Africa, the church in America, the church in South America. It should be culture shock to the surrounding culture. How we live as Christians. How we speak, how we work, how we parent, how we do marriage, and yes, how we suffer should look strange to the world. It should be shocking. Amen? It shouldn't look the same as the world. Wherever we gather, we should be causing culture shock. We shouldn't be marginally different in these areas, but vastly different in these areas, especially in the department of suffering and sorrow. Now, does the church suffer? Yes, we're not immune to it. We're not exempt from it like the world. We too will suffer, but we suffer differently. We mourn with hope. Mingled with our sorrow is joy, namely joy in the promises of God. Now, what's the background of 2 Corinthians? Let me give you a little context here. 2 Corinthians is all about suffering. It is the major or primary theme of the letter, namely the suffering of the Apostle Paul and how the Lord used his suffering to further his kingdom and proclaim the gospel. Now, Paul's opponents, and he had several, Paul's opponents, those who were against him, sought to undermine his apostolic authority on the basis that he what? He suffered too much. They're like, Paul, you can't be of God. You can't be an apostle. Why? You suffer too much. Paul, on the other hand, argues in 2 Corinthians that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. In fact, in the surrounding context of our passage, Paul argues that, this is so good, God's grace and power at work in his suffering are evidence of his apostolic authority. As Paul says later on in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am, then I'm strong. 
Now, listen, there are two views when it comes to suffering and sorrow. There's the view of the world, and there's the view of the word. There's what the world says, and there's what the Bible says. Let's start with the world. What does the world say about suffering? The world would say suffering is always bad. It means you've done something wrong, karma. It has no redemptive value. It makes one weak. It's evidence of the sheer meaninglessness of life. It reveals that God, if there is a God, doesn't care. And somehow you've angered him or disappointed him, and that's why you're suffering. Case in point, Paul's opponents sought to discredit his ministry on the basis that he what? He suffered too much. What does the Bible say? Does the Bible agree with the world on suffering? Say it in Spanish. No. Good. I want to focus on 2 Corinthians. I want to provide us quickly with a survey of suffering according to 2 Corinthians. This is going to be really helpful. Now, because of time, I'm not going to be able to read every passage, so write it down in your notes. It'd be good to go back and look at these. So this is what the Bible says about suffering and sorrow. Church, I think we need this today. Amen? According to 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 7, the God of all comfort comforts us in our suffering so that when others suffer, we can comfort them. Amen? Therefore, we can infer that God uses our suffering for our good and for the good of others. There's redemptive value in our suffering. I have like five more examples. Are you ready? According to 2 Corinthians 1.9, God uses our suffering to increase our dependence on him. Amen? Isn't it good to depend on God? Thirdly, according, this is just chapter 1. According to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 11, God uses our suffering to move the body of Christ to pray for each other. That's good, amen? It's good when we pray for each other. The Lord uses suffering to cause us to pray for our fellow believers. Four, I'm going to jump just to chapter two now. According to 2 Corinthians 14 to 17, God uses our suffering to proclaim the suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul's suffering embodied the cross in the message of the suffering Savior. And then finally, and this is so good, oh, chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, God uses our suffering to showcase his grace, to showcase his power, and to showcase his glory. Amen? Now that we have, hopefully, a more biblical understanding of suffering, I want to make a few observations from our passage. And we're going to focus primarily on one phrase. It is, we'll call it 2 Corinthians 6.10a. It's the first part of the verse. What does Paul say? As sorrowful, yet. Everybody say yet. Yet always rejoicing. I want to make a few points, three points from this one verse. And really just the first third of this verse. Number one, here's point number one. Church, we got to get this. It is not sinful to be sorrowful. Amen? It is not sinful to be sorrowful. Just as suffering is not wrong. Again, Paul's opponents 
sought to discredit him because he suffered too much. It was not wrong. It was part of God's plan for Paul. The gospel went forward through Paul's suffering. Think about the greatest act of suffering, the cross. Did God use that? We're here, aren't we? (laughs) Come on. Just as suffering is not wrong, responding to suffering with sorrow is not wrong. I think many Christians might feel guilty for responding to suffering with sorrow. The loss of a loved one. When your world seems to fall apart, that was not the case for Paul. Paul unabashedly reveals his sorrow over his sufferings. Now, the word for sorrow, it appears multiple times in 2 Corinthians. It's the verbal form, lupeo. It means to grieve, to be distressed, to experience sadness. Who can relate to that? Raise your hand. Distressed, sad, grieving. This same verb is used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to this. This is Matthew 26. I hope now you're seeing that if you're sorrowful today, you're in good company. Amen? Listen to this. Matthew 26, 37 to 38. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful. Jesus, sorrowful. Jesus, grieving. Jesus, sad and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is not just sorrowful, but very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. You see, Jesus was sorrowful over the prospect of the cross and more specifically of being separated from the Father. If Jesus was sorrowful and Jesus never sinned, then we can rest assured that our sorrow when done rightly, is not sinful. Amen? Or think of the tomb of Lazarus. How did Jesus respond to the death of Lazarus and the sadness of his sisters and their friends? The shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus, what? He wept. He wept. And before that, go two verses before that in John eleven thirty three. 33. We read, when Jesus saw her weeping, Mary... And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Everybody's crying. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That's appropriate. In commenting on this verse, David Mathis writes, this is helpful. His tears did not flow only from his love. He had righteous anger at the realities of death and unbelief. John says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Literally, this is what it means. He was outraged and unsettled. He was indignant and disturbed. Outraged and unsettled? Indignant and disturbed? This is an appropriate response to suffering and death. Let's go to Isaiah. How does Isaiah describe the suffering servant to come in Isaiah 53, verse 3. Who's the suffering servant, by the way? Jesus. This was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. It says, of the suffering servant to come, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The road of the Messiah, his mission and ministry was paved with suffering and sorrow. 
should we expect any different? What's the answer? No. Like Jesus, our sorrow, our sadness is appropriate when it's in response to sin and sin's devastating effects in our world. Now, Paul models this for us, doesn't he? Paul models this for us. The verb lupeo is used multiple times in reference to Paul, and not just in 2 Corinthians, but in other letters as well. Let me give you three examples. So in 2 Corinthians 2.5, we see that Paul was grieved. He was sorrowful over the slander of his opponents. His opponents were slandering him. In 1 Corinthians 12, you can write this down, 1 Corinthians 12.26, he was sorrowful when empathizing with the pain and suffering of fellow believers. When he saw fellow believers suffering, it made him what? Sorrowful. And then in Romans 9, 1 to 3, we see that he was greatly saddened over the unbelief of his fellow Jews. Slander, pain and suffering, and unbelief are all results of the what? The fall of being in a sinful, fallen world. All of these things caused Paul sorrow upon sorrow. Our sorrow, our anger and indignation is aimed, it is aimed, church, at the enemies of sin and death and the suffering and the anguish that results from these things. Thankfully, Jesus came to deal with these enemies. Amen? He came to deal with these things. Not only did he suffer, this is so helpful, not only did he suffer, which means that he can relate to us, right? We suffer, he suffered, he can relate to us. But he suffered in our place so that we can relate with him. And more specifically, so that we can be in a relationship with him. Therefore, like Paul, we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Remember this, this will be helpful. Whenever you find yourself saddened and in a state of sorrow because of suffering, hardship, and pain, and you will, I promise you, you will, it is inevitable, you are in good company. Amen? You're in good company. <clears throat> For our Lord Jesus and his servant Paul regularly experienced sorrow over the effects of the fall in God's world. This brings us to point number two. What's different about the believer's sorrow? Point number two. The believer is called. The believer is called to rejoice in the midst of sorrow. Our sorrow as Christians is mingled with joy. We mourn with hope, not like the world. The world, now, I've seen this, and it is, it is so sad. When the world, if you've, if you've known an unbeliever, and I've known a lot, and I know a lot, but when an unbeliever, when the world is cast into the throes of pain, suffering, and hardship, they despair. There's no hope according to their worldview, right? But not the believer, amen? That's not the believer. As we've already seen, believers experience sorrow, and rightly so, but we don't despair. Our sorrow is mingled with joy, and I'm about to show you how. Okay, I get it, Chris. I see it in the text, but how? How? So how does this work? How does this work? 
Our sorrow is based upon our circumstances, which are ever-changing. Our circumstances change, right? Would you agree with that statement? Therefore, our sorrow is temporary. It comes and it goes. It comes and it goes. Our joy, if you're a believer, our joy, on the other hand, is ongoing. Oh, why? Why is our joy ongoing? Because it's based upon eternal realities. This is why Paul says, as sorrowful and yet always, always rejoicing. Paul was able to always rejoice because God's promises are always true. Amen? Please know that Paul is not being oxymoronic here. He's not. Joy and sorrow, they are not mutually exclusive. There are multiple examples in the Bible of the believer experiencing joy in the midst of sorrow. Let me give you three. Romans 5, 3 to 5. Paul writes, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Wait, 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 wait. Come again, Paul? Maybe I didn't hear you right. What did Paul just say? Man, you kidding. You playing, Paul. No, he's not. We rejoice. What? In our sufferings? Again, to the world, that appears what? That's strange. That is strange. Knowing that suffering produces perseverance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. James 1, 2, and 4, very similar. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. What? Count it all joy when you face trials, suffering? For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. Are you catching the theme here? The Lord providentially uses suffering in our lives to make us more like Christ, to sanctify us. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice, there it is again, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's here's the kicker. Okay, get this. This is going to rock your world. Our sorrows, our sadness, and our suffering can serve to increase or augment our joy. How? In that they raise our attention heavenward. Let me give you an example. It's when we suffer that we most long for sweet relief. It's true. I've had multiple surgeries. I am accident prone. I've broken a lot of bones in my life. Let me give you two examples. I played soccer in high school and college. These are both soccer stories. So in high school, I jacked my knee up. I really hurt my knee. And I put dirt on it like everyone said. I rubbed dirt on it. It never got better. I tried to tough it out. I kept playing. Coach let me play, and I am just struggling. So finally, I go to the doctor. They do an MRI. My knee is messed up. It needs surgery. And I longed for that surgery. Why? Because I longed for the relief. I longed for that surgery that would eradicate the pain so that I could have what? Relief. I played soccer in college. We were coming back from a game in Tyler. We got back to the dorm. I go to bed. I wake up at 2 in the morning, and I thought somebody was stabbing me with a knife. 
my appendix was about to rupture. And I'm like, James, that was my roommate. I said, James, help me. <laughs> help me, James. I need help. He's like, bro, what's wrong? I said, I don't know what's wrong. Well, we got to go to the hospital now. And so we got to the hospital. They did a scan. Like, bro, your, your appendix is like three times its normal size. We got to get that bad boy out. I was dying. I was hurting so bad. I longed for the what? For the relief. It's when we suffer that we most long for sweet relief. The Lord, here it is, the Lord uses our suffering and our sorrow to bring our attention to the glory to come, to heaven, where our suffering and our sorrow will be no more. Let me give you one more story. It's so cute. When Clark and Luke, my boys, are sick, they talk about the return of Jesus. Dad, I don't like being sick. When's Jesus going to come back? (laughs) They know. We've taught them, right? We've taught them that when Jesus comes back, we're going to see him, those who trust in him. But guess what else? There's going to be no more what? No more sickness, no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. And every time, it never fails. Daddy, when's Jesus coming back? (laughs) I don't know, buddy. Let's make sure we're ready. Here's the point. Sorrow. I hope you see that there is a redeeming quality to our sorrow. Sorrow for the believer drives our thoughts heavenward. And that's a good thing to think about heaven. Amen? You know, I think about the Puritans. I've read the Puritans. I love the Puritans. They thought about heaven a lot. They suffered a lot more than we do. This was pre-antibiotics, right? And so life expectancy was much shorter. But if you read the Puritans, they longed for heaven. And that enabled them to suffer well. It gave them joy in the midst of suffering. The Lord sovereignly uses our suffering and our sorrow to remind us of what is to come and that for our joy. Now, before looking at the grounds or the reason for Paul's ongoing joy, a joy often mingled with sorrow, I want to talk about what this looks like practically. I want to look at the lives of Jesus and Paul. If you look at Jesus and you look at Paul, their lives were marked by sorrow, but their sorrow led to action. It led to what? Now, this is really important. This is the key to joy in the midst of sorrow. More significantly, their sorrow led to supplication. It led to prayer, a calling out to God. In 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 10, Paul speaks of his personal suffering. What does he do? What does he do when he suffers? 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Three times he, he prayed. He called out to God in his suffering. His suffering led to what? To action. And Jesus did the same thing, amen? What was he doing in the garden? With death on the horizon, separation from the Father, what did he do? Tell me. He prayed. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Sorrow leads to greater dependency on the Lord, which is demonstrated and experienced through prayer. Christian, we will suffer. 
And many of us are suffering. And sorrow is, sorrow is an appropriate response to suffering. But know this, by God's grace, we can suffer well. Amen? We can suffer well. And this is seen in our prayerful dependence on the Lord. There's a great book, and Aaron, I think we have it in the book nook. It's Suffering by Paul David Tripp. I've seen it. It's a great book. If you're suffering, I did a funeral back in Washington. A mom lost her daughter at 26, 26 years old, suffered greatly. And I gave her that book, and the Lord used it to encourage her heart. So Suffering by Paul Tripp, and I want to read one quote. Suffering has the power to destroy our self-reliance. Somebody say amen. That's a good word, right? Suffering has the power to destroy our self-reliance. The pain and weakness of suffering cause us to cry out to God, perhaps more genuinely, more deeply, and more humbly than ever. I would argue that this is the Lord's providential purpose in our suffering and sorrow, namely to drive us deeper into the Lord. We're going to talk more about joy in our third and final point, but I want to make one quick observation here. Joy is found where? Where's joy found? Tell me. Good, in the Lord. You know, this is a major theme in Paul's letters. Hopefully you're thinking of Philippians, because I've talked through Philippians, and we highlighted joy. In Philippians 1.25, Paul speaks of the believer's joy in the faith, joy in the gospel. Amen? And in Philippians 4, 4, we know this one. Paul commands the church to rejoice in the Lord. And to do it how often? There's a song, Rejoice in the Lord Always. That was terrible. Choir, that was your chance. I thought you guys were going to unite and next time, next year. Just be ready for that. For Paul, joy was found in the Lord. This is it. This is it. You ready? Don't miss this. If our sorrow, so where's joy found? In the Lord, okay. If our sorrow, our suffering, and our pain drives us deeper into the Lord, then our sorrow will inevitably lead to greater what? Joy. If our sorrow is providentially used by God to drive us deeper into him, and joy is found in him, then suffering will lead to greater what? Joy. There it is. Because we will find that in our suffering, in our sorrow, we are seeking more of him. And in him is joy. If you've ever been separated from family, I used to travel a lot more. I would do probably two conferences every year. I would do mission trips every summer, long trips in Albania. So there were long stints where I was away from my family. I know for some of you who are pilots, that's just normal, right? But we don't like it. If you're a husband... If you're a godly husband and you're away from your family, you miss them. Amen? And you can't wait to get back. Here's the kicker. This is good. The closer you get to home, right, you're on that flight. You got your connecting flight, I don't know, somewhere in the south. And then you land in Houston and you're like, oh, man, here we go. The closer you get to home, the more excitement to have, the more joy you have. In the same way, sorrow, although something we don't naturally long for, I who, wake up, who wakes up in the morning saying, God, I, I want more sorrow in my life? Nobody. We don't long for it. 
but God uses it to draw us closer to him and thus increase our joy. For joy is found in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, the Lord providentially uses our suffering and our sorrow to usher us into his sweet, sweet presence. Point number three, and then we're done. I want to conclude our time by answering one final question. What enables believers to rejoice in the midst of sorrow? Point number three, the believer can rejoice in the midst of sorrow because, because of their hope in who? Their hope in Christ. All right, so to pray, listen, to pray in the midst of sorrow is one thing, but to rejoice? Come on, Chris, to rejoice? I think for most, there lies the struggle. How do we rejoice when sorrowful? What enables the follower of Jesus to mingle joy and sorrow together? I want to focus on the last portion of our text of verse 10 where Paul writes, as having nothing, yet possessing what? Everything. There Paul goes again. Man, Paul, what are you talking about? How how is that possible? As having nothing, yet possessing everything. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The believer knows. Amen? The believer knows. This is the secret to joy in the midst of sorrow. Man, please listen to this. If you're not suffering right now, you will. And you need God's word. Amen? You need it. This is the secret to joy in the midst of sorrow. The idea of having nothing and yet possessing everything. And this too sounds like a contradiction. How can you have nothing and yet possess everything? Paul. Paul says something very similar in Philippians 4, 10 to 13. Let's start in verse 11. Sorry, 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Listen, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Even in the midst of sorrow, even when lacking basic needs, Paul had reason to rejoice. Amen? He had reason. Why? What was the reason? This is it. What enabled Paul to be content regardless of his circumstances? It was his hope in God's good promises. Amen? It was his hope in God's good promises. It was his future hope. He knew, Paul knew that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he had the promise of forgiveness, yes, but also of eternal life to come. And because of that, Paul always had reason to rejoice. We're going to suffer, but if you're a believer, what do you have the promise of? Eternal life with God. That promise doesn't go away. It doesn't change. That promise is meant to ground us. Amen? And so no matter what we find ourselves in, we can rejoice because of that good promise. What did Jesus promise his followers in John 16, 22? So also you have sorrow now, 
Jesus said. You have, he's talking to the disciples. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. That is a pulpit flip. No one. Somebody say no one. No one will take it from you. Do you know this joy? Do you know it? Only if you know Jesus, the resurrected king. How can we practice this joy? How can we practice this joy? This always rejoicing, even in the midst of sorrow, by remembering the word of God, the promises of God. Let me tell you a story. After we buried Abigail, our infant daughter, in Washington State, Haley and I lived, and I mean this, this is not hyperbolic, we lived in Revelation 21, 1 to 4, especially verse 4. And this is what verse 4 says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We knew, and we still know, that heaven would somehow be greater because of all the pain and suffering we'd endured. Because through our suffering, he made us long for it more. Does that make sense? Through our suffering, when you find yourself in a season of pain and sorrow, if you're a believer and you know the promises of God, you're going to long for heaven more. And that's a good thing, amen? You're going to get raptured up in the joy of the Lord knowing what is to come. And as we discussed earlier, our sorrow, our sorrow drove us to our future hope. A future hope that led to what? Rejoicing. We could rejoice even in our sorrow. It was sweet. It was sweet. One of the best ways to suffer well, to rejoice in the midst of sorrow, is to be familiar with the promises of God in the word of God. Commit God's promises to memory so that when you find yourself, and you will, in a season of suffering and sorrow, you're able to rejoice. Amen? This is the key. Let me quickly summarize, and then I'm going to pray. Let me quickly summarize some of the ways that the Lord works in and through our sorrow for our good, the good of others, and his glory, all which leads to greater what? Rejoicing. The first thing, in our sorrow and suffering, the Lord brings into, this is so sweet, and I've seen this. Max, I've seen this, brother. In our sorrow and suffering, the Lord brings into our lives others who have had sorrow and suffering. But you know what the God of all comfort did in those situations? He comforted them in their affliction so that they could comfort others who were suffering. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't waste a pain or a hurt. He comforts us in our sorrow so that we can comfort others when they're sorrowful. In our sorrow and suffering, we are made to depend more on the Lord prayerfully. It drives us deeper in. Amen? That's a good thing. In our sorrow and suffering, we become more aware and desperate for heaven. Our thoughts are lifted heavenward, and that's a good thing. And that leads to what? Joy. And in our sorrow and suffering, we're able to identify with our suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, 
Count it all joy when you get to identify with Jesus. All of these things are grounds for rejoicing. Let me end with a question. Do you know the one? Do you know the one who suffered in the place of sinners? Do you know the one who suffered in the place of sinners to one day put an end to suffering, sorrow, sadness, and sin? Do you know the one who came to overcome sin through his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his glorious resurrection from the dead? Do you know him? Know Jesus, and you'll know joy. Know Jesus, and you'll know joy. Know Jesus, and you'll know joy. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would know your son, that we would love your son, the son that you sent, the one and only unique son of God. You sent him, Father, to not only live a perfect life, a life that we are incapable of living because of our sin, you sent him to die in place of sinners. And on the third day, he was raised. And because he was raised, Father, we know that the cross worked and that all the claims of Jesus are true. And we thank you that because of his resurrection, we now have resurrection hope. That we can suffer well knowing the end of the story. Yes, we'll suffer. Yes, we'll have seasons of sorrow. But we know that one day, there'll be no more tears no more pain, no more suffering, and no more death for those who trust in your son. We rejoice in that hope. Father, help us as your church to share that hope with the world. Father, we look out on the world and we see the world suffering in despair. They need that hope. I pray that we would be the ones to boldly and faithfully take them the gospel message and urge them and plead with them to turn from their sin and to trust in Jesus so that they can know Jesus and know joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said.